0: You buy CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This week on TWIP, we've got a very special holiday episode for you. It's an interview with DSLR video pioneer Vincent LaFerre. Now, Vincent hasn't been on TWIP in a few years, and the last time I had him on was at the beginning of the DSLR video revolution. Vincent was one of the first photographers that showed that DSLR video could be used to shoot commercial projects, with cinematic results for a fraction of the cost. Now, Back in 2008 he shot and produced the industry mindset changing video known as Reverie and that project showed the caliber of work that could be produced with just a Canon 5D Mark II. In this chat, Vincent and I talk about the then and the now and how the industry has changed and what might be next. He gives plenty of tips on how regular folks can get started shooting professional looking video without taking out a second mortgage. It's Wednesday, December 21st, 2011, and this is TWiP. Okay, I've got a special treat for all you DSLR video shooters in the TWiP army. Um, a guy that I guess you could consider a general in the in the, the TWIP army of people that shoot video with their DSLRs. His name is Vincent LaFerre. And a lot of people, uh, most people have heard of him that are doing anything that's remotely related to this kind of stuff. But some people may not have. So I'm going at to, the, at the top of it, I'm going to have him introduce himself and sort of, you know, talk about what he's done and that sort of magic. And then we're going to dive into the world of DSLR video. And talk about then and now. Because Vincent has been involved with DSLR Video since since around the time when cameras actually started being able to do it with reasonable quality. So we're going to talk to him about that, what he's doing, what he did then, what he's doing now, and... What the future is, and also about his new book. It's called Visual Stories Behind the Lens with Vincent LaFerre. We're going to go into his new book and talk about why he wrote it and who it's for and all that magic. So, Vincent, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. It's good to be here. Good to be back. It is good to have you on again. I mean, we were talking before I clicked the record button, but we are. The last time I spoke with you was like literally, like I said a few seconds ago, back when canon had just started putting dslr video sort of capabilities in cameras that made sense right
1: yeah absolutely i think uh you refer to me as a general but in many ways perhaps it's more appropriate either uh you know recon or uh early scout or perhaps <laughs> even a minesweeper you know, those people they send out to you know blow themselves up or hopefully not blow themselves up right. that's how uh being in front of the uh the technological curve often feels is that uh, things definitely blow up in your face uh, a lot of times.
0: Yeah. So, how, I mean, how, how has it been since then? So, since you were you were in the, I would put you as sort of a Marine then. So, the Marines go in first, right? They go in first and make sure it's ready for the rest of the forces to go in. So, you're, you're a Marine. You went in, you, you're, or a settler. You went in, you took the arrows, right, and sort of figured this stuff out and showed millions of people literally that shooting video with a DSLR in many ways could surpass shooting it with traditional video or cinematography type gear so where were things then? Kind of paint a picture of where the world was then versus now.
1: I think that uh, the world back then was so cutting edge I mean these were cameras that were absolutely not meant to do this to the point where Canon has literally called it an accident on their press releases. Um, and uh, so I'm an accident in Canon's view, uh, officially. And uh, they were mad at me, I mean, to the point where I had people at, at Canon who were actually upset with me, saying, what are you doing with these cameras? This was not what we were marketing these cameras for. This is not what they were invented for. This is a pain, you know. You know and, and here we were trying to make these, these still cameras shoot, uh, you know, either small videos or all the way up to motion picture films. And the ergonomics were off, the ports were off, so many things were off. And look at the industry that's, that's, that's blossomed. I mean, few of us, and I, I work with a lot of you know, retailers now and uh, manufacturers, no one's really seen a movement this powerful, this fast, change the face of two industries in just three years. I mean, Reverie came out three years ago, and um, man, what a different landscape we're seeing. It's pretty incredible.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's crazy. I mean, yeah. And even, you know, I'm a Nikon shooter, even on the Nikon side, as as lethargic as Nikon can be, sometimes it's cameras are starting to shoot decent video. <laughs> so, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's it's been like a tidal wave over the industry and it's been polarizing in a lot of respects. A lot of photographers are saying, hey, I'm a photographer. You know, I shoot stills and I understand light and composition and exposure. Screw all this video stuff. That's for videographers. What do, What would you say to that?
1: Well, I'd say, on the one hand, more power to them. You know, I'm a photographer as well. Uh, it's a very different discipline. It's a very different market. It's a very different uh, calling and uh, personality type. You know, you're, you you could be a rugged individualist um, who likes to pick out a camera and run out and be reactive to some beautiful light or an incredible moment. Or you can be, of course, a commercial photographer or a portrait, portrait photographer, wedding photographer. And then there's filmmaking. That's a very different discipline that involves a, a big number of people, from cinematographers to directors to sound engineers, actors, etc., etc., etc. So there are they are absolutely two very distinct things. Uh, that being said, I would hope that the average photographer is at least dipping their toe into video and learning how to do basic edits because, you know what, their clients are asking for it. This is a, a market-driven economy, whether you're a photographer Or anything else and the market is clamoring for more video content Um, there is a tendency to go to an area where um, you know people want two for the price of one uh, sometimes literally for the price of one other times they're really looking to be more efficient and to use cameras like the Red Epic that shoot uh, the equivalent of 14 megapixels still in full raw 120 times per second
0: yeah, which is just magical. Yeah, yeah. So then, so th- that's a good point, though. I mean, you look at that cameras like the Red Epic versus the Five D. You know, and and I think where a lot of photographers might get hung up is like they want to shoot stuff like Vincent LaFerré and make it all cinematic and. Beautiful and all this stuff, but then they leave the camera store with their camera body and quickly figure out that it's more to it than just that body, right? So, it is. where wh- what are the like if you were to build like a ninja kit, like just the bare bones kit that you needed to go out and shoot something on a desert island or something like a, m- a music video, what would you bring with you?
1: I'd buy uh, a 5D or a 7D and a 2470 uh, zoom lens. Or two of their favorite primes, let's say maybe a, a 24 and a 50. And um, as far as accessories, I'd buy a, uh, an ND filter or one of the gradual ND filters they have out there. So you don't have to buy a bunch of them. Yeah. And um, I, I, would, I was, always used to say I'd buy a pair of sticks or a good, set of, a good tripod. But the reality is I so, so seldom use sticks anymore. Uh, I'm always moving the camera. So maybe a little, you know, shoulder rig system from Red Rock or Zacuto or Cinevate that they like. Um, And uh, I'm a big fan of the, you know, monitoring also off camera. So uh, a Marshall monitor or the Zacuto EVF, something to, um, you know, economically place your eye somewhere that's more comfortable than the LCD of the screen, which is really kind of retarded. So, um, you know, I mean, the reality of it is that it's, it, you can't just go out there and quote-unquote make a movie uh, with a bare 5D. I mean, it's possible, but it's really difficult. Um, and what I do now is I do, you know, I'm looking to do my first feature film within the next year. Uh, I do high-end commercials that, you know, come close to the million-dollar mark sometimes. So there's that, and then there's the market that's huge, which is everything in between that. So, you know, most photographers... Clients may not necessarily be asking for a Hollywood production. They're, they're probably going to go to a Hollywood director for that or a commercial director. But they may just want a nice sit-down interview and some nice B-roll to go along with the photographs or, or to supplement them. And, uh, you know, at that point, uh, a slider, maybe a, you know, a three- or five-foot slider from Kessler, for example, mm-hmm. um, and a nice tripod with a head, maybe a small little steady cam rig. But as you see, it starts to add up, and it's not cheap. But you've got to, you know, you've got to either borrow or rent this stuff at first if you can, and it's definitely very rentable. I mean, I know Borrow Lenses does uh, a lot of HDSLR accessories, so they rent, so you so you can try it out. But it's still expensive, and it, it can be a bit of a, a burden for just about anybody, myself included.
0: Yeah, Borrow Lenses is a is a savior for people that just want to experiment with this stuff and not not commit. They just want to date a little bit and not get married initially. Right?
1: Exactly. And, and people should keep in mind that in the video world, no one buys anything or they, they buy very little. Uh, whereas as photographers, we all want to buy everything. Yeah. So it's perfectly normal not to buy anything. And the reason is it's just so expensive.
0: Like, What kind of stuff are you going to like if I'm going to shoot, like paint a paint picture of I'm on a shoot and I decide, say I'm going to shoot a model and I want to do. Yeah, yeah, I heard like people are doing video of the models now instead of just stills. And I have this camera that shoots video. What do I want to do? Now, audio notwithstanding, say I don't care about audio; it's going to be visual only. Am I going to bring that Steadicam unit with me and shoot with that? Am I going to throw it on sticks? And you know, what 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 would you do?
1: I would almost never use sticks, especially for a model, because you're going to want to keep moving. Because uh, models tend not to move that much; they it tend to be pre stationary unless they're running down the beach or something. Um, so. A nice handheld rig that feels well balanced for you, um, with a good ability to monitor what you're shooting. So, yeah. that's where the to EVF or the DP4 uh, from Small HD might come in for you, uh, in terms of um, you know being able to see what you're shooting outside, you know, and move along with the camera. A little follow focus system helps, but you don't have to have that. Uh, NDs are absolutely essential. And then here's where it starts to get complicated. You can get a very small little handheld. Um, uh steady cam unit or or sort of that 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 unit the problem with those units is um you can't really focus as you use them because you're not supposed to touch the camera oh. on a steady cam rig so that's where it starts to get expensive real quick cuz the moment you actually want to have shallow at the field um you need to be able to focus or stay at least stay equidistant to the subject and that's where it can get a little more expensive and tricky wow
0: and then the other the other piece of it is audio right so uh, it, you uh, know that's a whole nother little cruise ship of things that people need to think about, right? Paint, paint a picture of, like, because audio can make or break a production of yep. anything, right? So how, how do these people that are like, okay, I have this DSLR, and I shot some video, and I use the onboard mic to record it, and it sounds like, you know, garbage. So what, what do they do?
1: Well, um, you know, film is 50% audio, and what differentiates an indie film from a blockbuster film is the quality of the sound. Uh, it's one of the big tricks in Hollywood. And, uh, you know, ultimately see if you can find someone who knows something about audio that can come with you. But you can buy, you know, a little portable unit like a Zoom H4n and or a uh, Tascam um, and um, do some nice quality audio results with it um, and also buy a, a lab set uh, so you can put that on your subject. But then you're going to want to get a boom mic. So really, you know... It, begins, it starts to become a, an investment of like at least $1,000 to $1,500 to have a, a relatively good audio system. Yeah. But, you know, and, and most people are like, I'd rather buy a lens, right? Let's be honest. So um, that's where you know, music is great, because unless you're doing a narrative where you need audio or a documentary, um, if you're photographing a model or filming a model, uh, do it what we call MOS, which means without sound, um, and uh, add music over it to hide the fact that you don't have any uh, natural or live audio. Yeah.
0: What about what about The, this is the other thing that, that sort of comes up in my mind is people. You know, Scott, I look at I look at Vincent LaFerrey and I just imagine your world of like you sitting on the director's chair with the with the bullhorn and five hundred people swarming around doing what you say do, right? So what about the guy, you know, like me that's there and I just want to do this shoot. I found some model on model mayhem and I want to do some video, but I'm not gonna have a whole lot of people with me. So am I able to do that kind of stuff with just me? Reverie was done by finding two models at modeling agencies.
1: And the first thing you should know is generally models don't make good for good actors. Uh, it's, a different, it's a different thing
0: yeah. if
1: you're doing anything narrative. But for Reverie, it was myself and three friends. That was it. And a makeup artist. So, yes, you can absolutely do it. You know, it's just that, um, you know, expect to know what your limitations are. You know, don't try to pull off a really complex camera move on a dolly with a rack focus and lighting, I mean, that takes a lot of people. Uh, use natural light, uh, be free going and don't take yourself too seriously. You know, the problem with big crews and sitting on a director's chair is that it's such a process that you lose a lot of the spontaneity that a handheld person could have with a small camera. Yeah. And that's why so many filmmakers love the 5D Mark II is they can go by themselves and just rack focus point the camera into the sun to get flares or to lights and have fun with it and be free going. And it's not a 50 pound camera. Uh, It's not a big apparatus. You don't have, you know, $30,000 of rental lighting around you. Um, Keep it simple. I mean, unless you want to make Blade Runner, do you have to? No. Good videos um, often require one nice little key light or a little bounce card. Um, if you look at the last film that I shot uh, called Mobius with Canon's new camera, yeah. uh, we only had uh, two scenes that were lit, the inside of the plane as well as the exterior, uh, and the, uh, the process trailer, the, the, the dialogue scene where the two guys are inside the car. Everything else was all natural light, so it can definitely be done. And that's because we didn't have the budget or the time to have, you know, uh, everything lit.
0: Wow. That's, that's amazing. Now, now, you mentioned earlier that in 2012 you want to produce your first feature film. Now, is this, I'm assuming that this is going to be with DSLR hardware, and is DSLR hardware ready for this? Well, it's been used. Uh, Shane Holman has a
1: film called Active Valor that he DP'd coming out uh, this year, which looks amazing. Um, uh, I'm forgetting the exact title, something Crazy Love. Uh, Stupid Crazy Love, is it? Uh, It won the Sundance Film Festival last year. Um, It was entirely shot on HDSLRs from Canon. And I think close to at least over 50%, I think almost 70% of the films entered last year in Sundance were shot on HDSLRs. So yes, it's absolutely ready. Uh, I would probably go shoot a film uh, next year with either the C300 from Canon that just came out, uh, the Red Epic, or the Alexa, depending on what type of film it was.
0: Wow. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an exciting time. Do you, what, do you, what, do you see, what do you foresee in 2012 in terms of changes for this market overall?
1: I think uh, it's an economic change. So, um, or it's an, What I meant by that, so let me rephrase that. It's not going to change because it has to do with economics. So the high-end Hollywood people are going to be debating between the Alexa, the Red, and the C300 as our middle to higher-sized productions. Most of us and most of you listening aren't going to stick with your SLRs because uh, you can afford them. You can't afford a fifty-eight thousand dollar Epic or a fifteen thousand uh, dollar Scarlet necessarily, or a fifteen to twenty thousand dollar C three hundred just for the just for the bodies for all those. Um, you know, you, you most can probably spend five grand, maybe ten, and that's a lot of money. So that's why uh, people say, oh, the HDSLRs are over. I'm like, you guys are so wrong. Look at at the numbers. Look at the affordability. And the reality is when you put a Red Epic or an Alexa or a C300 on the web, you can't distinguish it that much from an HDSLR. When you project them on a cinema screen, in a theater, on a 60-foot screen, you can definitely see a a world of difference. But uh, you'd be surprised that if what your main audience is is Vimeo and the web, or YouTube, um, stick with the 7D and the 5D, or the 1DX.
0: They're really, really good cameras. Or, or in my case, the D7000, which is. Nah, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> You're poo-pooing so, on my D7000. I can't believe I'm, it.
1: For Nikon, like anyone, because I love a two-newspaper town as opposed to you know a a, a monopoly. But uh, I'm I'm just I'm waiting along there with you for a, a good Nikon camera. Maybe the D7000. Is it? Um, or seven
0: hundred. Yeah, yeah. D said the next one. I think the rumor is a D eight hundred, which is supposed to be the competition.
1: I'm still waiting.
0: Yeah, I know, I know. Believe me, I I feel the pain. No, you don't. <laughs> I'm trying to be loyal, but you know. So let's talk a little bit about the the other half, or the you know the the dragon or the five hundred pound gorilla in the room, with regard to video editing or video is editing, right? Mm-hmm. So. With still photography, you go out, you burst off a bunch of frames, and you bring them in the Lightroom, and you edit, you export, and you're done. With mm-hmm. video, it's a little more complicated. So what, what is your process? I hire a good editor or work with one. Uh, from Reverie, the first thing
1: I ever shot, uh, I saw the initial edit twice, and I couldn't watch it a third time. And I was with Andre Costantini, and I said, Andre, is this how you would edit this? And he said, not necessarily. And I'd seen a little uh, sequence he'd done at the bottom of the timeline that was really interesting. I said, can you edit the whole film like that? And he said, sure. And and so it went. And that's how it became what it was, which is a very nonlinear piece. So, you know, learn to edit. But if you don't know what you're doing, uh, there's a lot of friends out there who edit and have them edit your stuff. And just watching them work with your work and show you where you made mistakes when you forgot to pre-roll a little bit, which means to start rolling a little early, Mm -hmm. or roll a little longer than you needed to, um, or didn't think about your coverage, which means, you know, how do you cut from one shot to the next? And if there's a mistake in one shot where someone flubs their line or the camera bumps, do you have another angle to cut to to kind of uh, cover that up? And uh, you'll learn relatively quickly. That being said, well, I can do a basic edit. I have no interest in it. And that's the beauty of being a filmmaker is that, you know, there's a cinematographer, there's a director of photography, there's an editor, there's a screenwriter, there are actors, there's an art director, uh, there are wardrobe people. That, you, know, you see what I'm saying? It's yeah. Everything's sectionalized because each is a specialty. And, um, you know, I'm, I've never been a big fan either of photographers editing their own work, to be honest. And uh, especially in, high, in, in high-end commercial work, Almost every photographer has a retoucher that they work with and collaborate with. It's an additive process. So, sure, there's nothing like just sticking your card in and doing a quick edit on your image in Photoshop, in Lightroom, or in Aperture. But, um, you know, that's not necessarily what filmmaking is. Filmmaking, uh, of course, there are always the really talented people who do it all by themselves. That is definitely true. But for most of us mere humans or mortals, um, you know, Find other people. F- a photography is about being a one-person band most of the time. Filmmaking is about collaborating with others. Yeah. And by taking some very talented people and taking these in- individual pieces and making a sum, uh, that's much greater uh, than in the individual parts.
0: Yeah, see, that's that. I think that right there, that sentence that you just uttered is is where a lot of photographers fall down when they start considering DSO, shooting video and, and adding that to their bag of tricks is that photography in general is a solo kind of experience. You're like, okay, I'm going to grab my camera. I'm going to go out. I'm going to shoot some pictures of bumblebees today. You know, I'm going to bring them back into Lightroom and edit them and put them on 500 pics or Flickr or whatever. And it's it's you. It's all you from the snap of the shutter all the way through to uploading and responding to the comments you get. How conversely, like you were just saying, filmmaking is a collaborative experience. There's a crowd of people that coalesce to create this final product. And I mean, think that's, that's where photographers need to sort of start moving towards. But it's a question of how do they move towards that as a photographer who's not putting food on the table with this stuff, and they're just experimenting, but yet they want to they create Vincent LaFerre quality work. How do, they, how do they move, or what's a baby step to move in that direction?
1: Uh, the baby step is to find friends, is to get out of your shell and to say, who do I know that is a good editor or at least likes to edit? Who do I know that likes to compose music? Who do I know that likes to mix sound? Who do I know that likes to color correct video? Who do I know that likes to act? Who do I know who likes to write screenplays? It sounds daunting if you look at it like that, like it's a burden, mm-hmm. even for me at times. like, oh, you know, where do I find these people if I can't pay them? But you'll find that, you know, actors are looking for directors and filmmakers as our makeup artists, as our editors, for good stuff to edit. So as you get going and you're not, you know, working on 50000 or $500,000 projects uh, or even $5,000 projects, um, that's okay. Find friends that will work with you. And you guys may just have a blast. That's the beauty of filmmaking. It's it's about working together with other people that are like-minded, uh, or have different talents, and you produce something together. And it's extremely exciting. You know, uh, people call me now and say, "Hey, I want to do a quick little video," and I explain to them that I can do a quick little video, but I, I'm not necessarily interested because I've been doing it for three years. I've done a number of commercials and short films, and I want to push the envelope on a personal level and you know really work on my lighting and the camera movement and the wardrobe. And the location selection—that's me. You know, I'm—I'm I'm three years into it and 22 years into my career. Um, I have pretty high standards. You don't have to be like that. You know, just get started with baby steps.
0: Yeah, yeah I love it. I mean, the, like they say, what's the what's the uh, the cliche? Every journey begins with one step, right? So just exactly. start doing stuff. Is the is what I'm taking away from that. So what, what about, like, um, advice? So, you know, like, if you could give, there's a guy, I'm sure you've, you've talked to millions of people or thousands of people like this that just say, Hey, Vincent, I just want to jump into this stuff. I want to try, how do I start? Is the, the whole solar system of all the stuff that I need to learn is huge. Where do I start? What's my first step to getting into video?
1: Sure. Um, well, there are a lot of resources out on the, on the online, uh, on the web. Uh there are books. Um, there's some videos that I've done for Creative Live that would help them. Uh that's you know you can find on my blog. But more more simply, um, you know, start by just doing and taking small steps. Uh and learn the best piece of advice I can give you is learn how to move the camera. In other words, uh in modern filmmaking or video or music videos, the camera is almost always moving. And it doesn't just move randomly. It moves to help steer an audience in a certain direction, either by showing them that you're going from point A to point B, or by trying to draw out an emotional or intellectual connection. Uh, it's called you know, screen direction and cinema uh, language. Uh, in other words, you don't just move the camera left to right because you feel like it. So if you pan left to right, things feel much more comfortable than you pan right to left. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we all read left to right. It's very simple stuff. Um, But if you move from point A to point B with the camera, do, do so or choose to do so for a reason. So how do you know how to do that? Well, here's the second piece of advice I have for you. Go find all of your favorite films. Make sure you have the remote control in your hand. And when you see a scene that you particularly like, rewind and pause and break it down. Ask yourself why the director chose this lens versus a wide angle or a telephoto, why they chose to use a steady cam versus being locked off, which means a non-moving camera, or why they choose a dolly move, or whatever move it was. It doesn't necessarily matter that you know how they did it, or what apparatus they used. It does matter that you understand or think about why they moved the camera in that way, um, and, you know, moving the camera is one of the most important things you can do in terms of drawing out emotion and making your, your video or film come to life. So you have an encyclopedia at your disposal on Netflix or in your DVD or, D- or Blu-ray collection. Study the masters, whether it's Orson Welles back in the day or Hitchcock, or whether it's J.J. Abrams, Spielberg, uh, Kubrick, Scorsese, uh, you name it. Uh, they're right there at your disposal. And then my last tip on that point is when you see a really bad TV show or a really bad film, study it very carefully. Because once you understand why those are bad, you'll learn not to make those mistakes. Sometimes the audio is a disaster. Sometimes the screenwriting and the script is a disaster. Other times the camera's not moving well or the lensing is off, the lighting is terrible. Any one of those things can draw you out. And of course the acting can be bad. But you'll start to learn you know, film in the same way that a lot of you probably have studied photographs, by looking at endless amounts of magazines, iPad apps, you know, newspapers, books. Uh, every time you look at a book or an image, you study it inherently. And you break it down, and you realize, wow, look at the composition. Look at the light. Look at the color. Look at ge- the geometry. Um, and that is just one layer of filmmaking, all of that. And that's the cinematography part of it. Then you add the movement and all the other elements, and you start to really understand how complex it can become.
0: Yeah, and then you, then you start, you just experiment, rinse, and repeat, right? Just keep yep. going. Yep. Yeah, that's crazy. That's great advice. All right, like, I want to move into, I know you, you're, you're a little bit tight on time, but I want I to talk about your book, um, sure. Visual Stories Behind the Lens with Vincent Laferay. So why, why this book? Why did you write this book, and who is it for?
1: They asked me to write a book. This is Peach Pit, three years ago. I said, no, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> I was uh, 34, and I was like, who, who writes a book about their career at 34? And then it's been three years since I've you know been shooting for the most part, and I finally acquiesced and said, okay, let me write a book with you uh, about my career because I am mostly directing now. It's like 95%. Uh, I, I might do two photo, photo assignments a year now, which is kind of sad. Um, I miss it. But anyways, um, I wrote this book for, not for myself, it sounds wrong, but it, I, I wrote a book that I myself would want to read is what I'm trying to say.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I, I did not write a technical book. So if you want to learn about aperture, shutter speed, uh, and raw modes, this is not the book for you. Although I have all the EXIF data on every photograph beneath it. And I do talk about lens selection and use of light and all that stuff. But I wrote a book that really is something I would want to pass on to my son uh, or to a friend if they want to better understand how I got to the photographs that I got to. So within the book are anecdotes, the story behind the images, the psychology behind the image, what I was trying to accomplish, and when it, when it actually worked, when it did not, um, as well as uh, the process, the preparation, uh, the research. Um, it's basically like a look into my mind and my process is the best way I can describe it. It's meant to be a, just a nice, fun read with a lot of good information, hopefully. The best compliment I've gotten from people that are not, is that for people who are not in photography that, that really enjoy it as well.
0: That's great. That's great. I'm looking through the table of contents right now. I'm looking at chapter two, a story in a single image. What? what give me just a brief sort of synopsis of what that chapter is about that chapter talks about
1: my career at the New York times where very often um, you know it's a a very tight newspaper uh, where they're going to run one image uh, from your entire day your 18 hour day your five hour day whatever it is and you have to capture what you think um, basically um, sums up the entire event of the day that you've been photographing in one singular image that is both visually striking but also informative, that people will understand uh, a little better um, what the story is about. Hopefully, it'll drag their attention to the story, and it will hopefully either complement or show an additional aspect of the story that they're not reading within the words.
0: Yeah, the other the other chapter that is that really stuck out to me is the last chapter in the book. I mean, and, it, and it's titled "Never Make a Mediocre uh, Mediocre Sorry Image." What does that mean? I mean, of course, people don't want to do that, but why a whole chapter on that? Uh, Because I think it's a very big part of my process, Um, and that that
1: is simply that I refuse to make images that bore me, Mm -hmm. that I've seen before or made before, even if they're great. So if I see something that just looks fantastic, but I've seen it shot a hundred times, or I've shot it twice myself, I keep moving, and I look for the image I've never seen before. Uh, And... A big part of why I've been successful as a photographer is that I've refused to make a mediocre or good or okay image. I've always sought out to make spectacular images, and that, that happens, you know, five times a year. But you you search for it every single day.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting because it's like you you. N- Advanced amateur photographers or amateur photographers, they start off by looking at other people's work and say, okay, I want to try to do that and deconstructing it like we were talking about before. How do you, how do you transition from deconstruction and emulation to being creative and pushing the envelope?
1: You just, you just take it one step further. So there's nothing wrong with looking at your favorite photographer's style and reproducing it and copying it that's how you learn and you realize ah that's how they did it that's a lens they most likely use that's the time of day they most likely shot it at and the settings but then pay it forward um if someone i've had a few people come up to me over the years show me photographs that were exact duplicates of what i shot and my reaction was well so what when however uh similar people came up to me with an image that was similar to what I shot but was better or different, I get very excited. I'm like, that's awesome. You know? You've know, you taken what I did and you took it to the next step. And that's, that's what we all try to do is we all look at each other's works. Uh, every high-end photographer looks at everyone, other, everyone, everyone else's work for the most part because we want to keep seeing what other people are seeing and producing and we want to push each other. But at the end of the day, pay it forward, bring it to the next level, push the envelope, and finally, they mentioned no one's ever seen. And when you do that, you get the respect of everybody, no matter what your influences were, because we're all influenced by one another.
0: That's wonderful. And there's, there's a, a ton of resources out there for, like you were saying before, from the just diving into Netflix, or, or uh, if you're just sticking on the still side, just dive into 500 picks and mm-hmm. look at the shots on there and just sort of say, hey, how did they do that? And I want to try to do that and try to replicate it and put your own spin on it, right?
1: Yeah, Exactly. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's just about pushing this um, profession and this uh, craft to a new level at all, at all times. If you spend time making mediocre images, you're going to run out of time and not make the great ones. Yeah. So the more time you spend, to, oh, that's an okay picture, click. Oh, that's an okay picture, click. Guess what? You're going to run out of time and you're going to miss the great image. It's a very important thing to, to consider.
0: Yeah, that's great. That's great. So I'm looking at your book, and in the back of the book is something that I didn't expect. There's a there's a disc in here, an optical disc. Yeah. What's that about, and what's it for? It's
1: my ugly mug, um, and it's a series of videos where I talk additionally about the images. So I had a an iPad and iPhone app called Visuals that came out uh, a little bit over a year ago, Mm -hmm. and a lot of the images were the same images that are in the book. So we decided to burn that uh, onto a DVD and uh, include that with the book so people can hear me talk about the images uh, and make different points at times than what's in the book and uh, talk a little more technically about certain images as well.
0: Very cool. Awesome. All right, Vincent, thank you for taking the time today to, to chat with me about this stuff. It's fascinating. We could talk for hours and hours because I have a list of questions that just goes on and <laughs> on. But uh, where if people want to get this book or they want to follow you and find out the stuff that you're up to and keep yep. you know, find out about this feature film that you're working on, where do they go? Uh, I put everything up on my blog.
1: So it's just blog dot dot com. Uh, And I tweet a lot as well. It's just at Vincent LaFerre. That's V-I-N-C-E-N-T-L-A-F-O-R-E-T. And uh, the book is on there on the top right of the page, as well as the um, Creative Live sessions. Uh, I have a huge gear section, so if you want to know what DSLR gear there is out there and my recommendations and my comments on it, there is a plethora uh, between audio gear, sticks, lenses, support, uh, sliders, uh, batteries, monitors—it's all up there. It's I, we put a tremendous amount of time into that section.
0: That's gold, and we'll, we'll definitely link to that from the from the show notes. Uh, before I let you go, just want to get your your give me an insight into Creative Live. I mean, a lot of people have heard about it. I know you've been one of the one of the 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 first people that were on there developing content for it. What is Creative Live? Who is it for, and why should I go in there and sign up for it?
1: Uh, Creative Live was created by Chase Jarvis um, and some partners, and the idea was to have him invite a bunch of his friends to do a one, two, three, or more day workshop and put it out there live for free. So if you were lucky enough to watch it when it was happening or the ones that are happening now, they're being streamed you know, every week. There, there are a few workshops that are perfectly free, and then uh, eventually uh, they are recorded and edited down and sold uh, individually. Uh, For a pretty, you know, relatively small price given the amount of content, so I think mine is just around $100, and it's like three full days of material uh, for one of the workshops, so 72 hours. uh, Well, not 72, but at least uh, a good 30 hours of material.
0: And what what do I walk away if I if I buy that thing? What do I walk away with in my head? Uh, uh, Well, the first one is a kind of a basic
1: intro into uh, videography, and the second one we actually shot an entire documentary uh live and then an entire narrative scene live, uh which is pretty useful. It talks about, you know, setting marks, about blocking out a scene, about storyboarding, uh lighting, uh working with actors. Uh it's it's there's a lot of good content in there in my opinion.
0: Wonderful. Wonderful. All right Vincent, thank you again for uh, for taking the time. This has been informative and inspirational.
1: Thank you, it's my pleasure and happy holidays to everybody and happy new year. All
0: right, thanks Vincent Cheers. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off. This Week in Photo is a PixelCore.tv production. Produced by Suzanne Llewellyn with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar.